Well, hello, Door Creek Church. How are we doing? Good. You made it in the rain. Good job. And only slightly soggy to show for it. Well done. Well, my name is Ryan Morrison. I am the DeForest Campus Pastor, and it's my privilege to get to share with you today. It's awesome to be with you. Uh, if you don't know, today is actually a really special day for everyone at Door Creek Church, and especially our Door Creek family at the forest because we are breaking ground or maybe breaking mud, I don't know, uh, on, the, on the new facility that's going up in DeForest. And guys, so much prayer and so much work has gone into this and a lot of you have actually been a part of that. So thank you so much. I kind of am like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I get to just jump onto this train that's speeding ahead and I and, uh, get to kind of reap uh, from just the work that's been put in before me. I'm so, so grateful to be a part of this. Uh, some of you are going to be with us down there today. If, if you are not going to be with us, that's fine. Just, just know that uh, God is working in you and through you, and he's, he's making his name greater uh, in our community and, and bringing more and more people uh, into relationship with him. So that's super, super awesome. Well, I am a new face around here. We've been here for around six weeks, so can I introduce you to my family? Is that okay? Okay, well, if, if you didn't want to be introduced, sorry, uh, but I'm the one up here. So uh, this is my family. Uh, they're like to your left. Uh, it's Ivy and me, and then August and Silas, and my wife, Bree, is in the back there. So Ivy is nine, August is six, Silas is 10, almost 11, and he will tell you if you ask how, him how old he is. Uh, and and Bree is my wife, I'm not going to tell you her age, but I will tell you that tomorrow we're celebrating 13 years of marriage. So we're, we're really stoked about that. Kind of flies by, at least for me. I'm not sure if that's the same for her. Anyway, uh, so we just moved here from Reno, Nevada. Uh, that is a place that exists uh, in the Western United States. Uh, and I served there um, in kids and family ministry for about five years. And our Reno friends, when we told them we were moving to Wisconsin, they're like, you're crazy. Do you know how cold it is here? <laughs> and we're like, yeah, we know how cold it is. We kind of grew up around here. And you know what? They don't know just how invigorating a nine-month winter can be. <laughs> So we're, we're just really excited to be here. Uh, well, we are in the second of a four-week series, teaching series called Be the Church. Uh, and what we're doing is we're looking at four different aspects, some, they're kind of like word pictures of, in the Bible that describe what this thing is that we do, that we call church. So last week, uh, my friend John Anderson taught from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, taught on this word picture of the church as a body with all these different distinct parts that somehow work together as one. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, this, really a summary of the mission of the church that we get from Jesus as he, as he gave it to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 28. So uh, let's turn to the book of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. So if you don't know where that is, just kind of fold it open in the middle and go a little bit to the right. And we're going to be in the last chapter, the last verses of the last chapter. These are actually the closing words of Matthew's biography of Jesus. And the words are going to be on the screen. Let me read it here. Starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee 
to the mountain where Jesus told them, had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So a little bit more about me. Uh, I graduated as a homeschooler from, from high school um, and I, I feel like that's not being completely uh, transparent. So I'm pretty sure I graduated as a homeschooler <laughs> from high school. Um, any homeschoolers here? Come on, don't be shy. One, brother. All right, sweet. Okay, I'm sure there are others, but you're like, where is he going with this? Um, no, homeschooling is, is awesome. But I want to teach you guys something just to bring you into the homeschool kind of mindset a little bit here, okay? So this is called a homeschool high five. And I need participation. So uh, take your right hand and, and raise it up, okay? You're going to need to put your coffee down because you need your left hand for this. I'll give you a second. Sweet. Okay. Uh, okay, now raise your left hand and do this. Did you get it? It's a homeschool high five because you're the only one to high five. In your... Okay, anyway. So that's, that's my high school experience for you. Thank you for entering into that space with me. Now, homeschooling was, was awesome. So uh, I got to kind of work at my own pace, which was a lot faster, I guess, than it would have been and if I had to wait for everybody else. I got to spend more time on the stuff that actually interests me, and I got to be like a Bible nerd when I was in high school. I got to travel. I got to study piano, and I got to like be in a rock band, or at least I thought that was cool. And I got to serve in my uh, church's youth ministry, and I got to do all sorts of cool stuff. But there was one thing that I missed out on, and it was a graduation. I didn't have a graduation, right? So for me, when I, I finished like my last assignment of my senior year, I closed my book and I was like, yay, you know, homeschool high five, all right. <laughs> but a graduation can be like a real milestone on your journey, right? It's, it's where you can look back at how far you've come and then look ahead to where you're going. And we're like in the season of graduations right now. And in a sense, what we just read from Matthew, this, that's kind of what is going on in this passage. It's a milestone in the biblical story where Jesus gives us this concise summary of purpose and mission. He gave that to his followers, which includes us today. So, after high school, uh, I went to a school called Bethany College of Missions in Bloomington, Minnesota. And Bethany is this really small school, and, and all they do is they train missionaries to go out and bring this mission to the world. And so this passage that we just read is really this anchor passage. I mean, for years, we studied it, we dissected it, and then we, we worked both on the field and in the classroom to try to understand how to apply it. And here's what I realized. The mission is really easy to understand, but it's really hard to do. 
It's really easy to understand. You could teach it to a child, but it's really hard to do. And, and maybe you're a Christ follower and you're already tuned into this and, and maybe you can go, yeah, yeah, it is, it is hard to do. Or maybe you think it's easy to do and not. I want to sit at your feet and learn from you. Maybe, maybe you're a Christ follower, but you haven't really thought about this. And maybe, maybe this is something you haven't really integrated into your, your life yet. Or maybe you're here and you're not really sure what you think about all this. Maybe you're here because someone brought you and, and you're, you have this at a, at a distance and you want to figure out what it is that Jesus is trying to sell us on first before you say yes to anything. And so, I mean, I'm just going to be straightforward. My, my goal for us today is that we leave here, that we say yes to Jesus and we say yes to his mission. So, To help us do that, I want to bring three questions to this text. First of all, what is this thing that we're talking about? What is this mission? Just to understand that. Uh, Why is it so impossible? And what makes it possible? So what is this? Why is it so impossible? What makes it possible? Let's let's ask that first question. What is this? So there are a few clues uh, in this text that that help us understand what's going on here. Uh, And two of them have to do with where this event is taking place, so the geographical, physical location. So let's look at verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples, I need you to help me out, went to where? Galilee. That's right. To the what? Mountain. Galilee Mountain. Okay, so these are two huge clues. And by the way, when biblical authors are telling historical narratives like this, uh, and they add like places and events and the names of, of things... This isn't just like trivia. This is actually, these are really important clues to help us understand the purpose and the meaning of what's going on. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at this because uh, we see here that Jesus had given his followers instructions to meet him in a specific place in Galilee. But in order to understand what's going on, we have to get the background. And to get that, we have to go all the way back to the prophet Isaiah. So if you want to put your thumb in Matthew and go back to Isaiah, you can. If not, I'm just going to put the words up here. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here's here's a prophecy, a foretelling of what was going to happen. It says, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. Uh, That was um, an important trade route back then, beyond the Jordan. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So what does this mean? It means that God's plan was that this promised Messiah who would come would initiate his messianic movement that would bring light and hope to the whole world and it would start in Galilee. Now this was surprising. Because where should it have been launched? Where is the temple It's in Jerusalem, right? The temple's in Jerusalem. All of the religious elite were in Jerusalem. That's where they taught. That's where everything flowed from uh, out of of Israel was was from Jerusalem. But this messianic movement was not going to be launched from Jerusalem. It was going to be launched from this backwoods farming area of Galilee. That's so surprising. Now, why, why wasn't it happening in Jerusalem? 
And when you read Matthew, the rest of it, you realize it's because the religious elite there had rejected Jesus' claims to authority. They thought they knew all about the Messiah because they read prophets like Daniel, where in Daniel chapter 7, described that the Messiah would be this, this strong ruler who would have glory and exercise dominion over the whole earth. And they read Psalm chapter 2, which said that, uh, that the Messiah would execute judgment on the nations with an iron rod. But like so many, I think, I think really well-intentioned, moral people, these religious leaders in Jerusalem somehow forgot about passages like Isaiah 53 that describe Messiah as, as humble and gentle and someone who wouldn't, who wouldn't lead through condemnation but through service and sacrifice. So this Jesus came along and was claiming to be Messiah but he was empathizing with partiers and sinners. And so to this religious elite group in Jerusalem, Jesus was a scandal. So they crucified him. And Jerusalem lost out. So this Galilee clue, it tells us, it tells us that this, this moment that we're reading about is the initiation of a prophesied movement, but, and this is so, so important, that it would bypass those who couldn't come to terms with who Jesus is. It would bypass those who couldn't come to terms. And I think that's for us today. So let's go on. The second clue is the mountain. And if you look through the entire biblical story, you'll notice something about mountaintop experiences. There's kind of this mountain motif where God speaks and he lets people in on his big picture plan. So there are tons of examples here. Uh, just quickly, a few of them. Genesis chapter 8, God speaks to, to Noah on the mountains of Ararat and he says, he reiterates his his blessing that, and his command that he gave to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis chapter 22 God speaks to Abraham and promises that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through him and his descendants. Exodus 19, God spoke to Moses and said, hey, I want Israel to be like this mediating nation of priests to, to like mediate between God and, and the nations. And there are lots more like these. And so these mountaintop experiences are places where God is almost like literally lifting his people up out of the valleys of their experiences so they can see where this is all headed. And a super interesting Bible study would just be to look at all of those mountaintop experiences and get a sense for, for what God has planned. We're not gonna do that today though. But Matthew, Matthew totally picks up on this. And, and he wants us to understand that this moment, what's going on with Jesus and his disciples is part of that same category of the other mountaintop experiences except for one thing. All of those other experiences were pointing to God's future promises. But this passage, this was the initiation of those promises. Matthew wants us to get that, that Jesus is saying that that all God has been promising in the past is from henceforth being set into motion. That now, finally, Messiah is here. He's flipping the switch on this movement, and now the effects of sin will be rolled back. 
And people would be given a new way to be human through Jesus. That's what's going on here. And there's another clue, and we find that in verse 18. Then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what is Jesus talking about? He's claiming to be the mighty Messiah described in Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 and the gentle, self-sacrificing servant in Isaiah 53. And, and this, I think this is so important for us to understand because right after verse 19, in, I'm sorry, verse 18, in verse 19, he says, therefore, and then he describes what he wants his disciples to do. And whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask what it's there for. For real, that's a kind of a helpful little limerick. So I, I think this is really important for us to grasp because our mission flows from his authority. Like there is a direct connection. So if we miss what he's talking about when he talks about his authority, we miss the mission. Does that make sense? All right. So let's look at what he's talking about. And all week, guys, I've been, been wrestling with Jesus' words and, and trying to articulate uh, what's going on here? I'm just praying that it comes through. So I, I believe that in the tension between these two very different descriptions of Jesus as Messiah, that somewhere in the tension is the heart of the gospel. It's the essence of the good news. So Jesus reveals God as, as he truly is. He's, he's holy and he's merciful. He's strong and he's gentle. He's a judge, and he's a scapegoat. He demands perfection, but he embraces broken, messed up people. That's the good news. And I really believe that, that the whole world really could just be divided into two camps, and each one of them really preferring one of these descriptions of Jesus over the other. I'm not just talking about in the church, I'm talking about globally. There are like more traditional religious conservative types who, who really kind of embrace that holy judge description, that, that judge who demands perfection, and then there's the irreligious liberal types who tend to prefer that humble servant who embraces sinners, and here's the thing, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. Because in embracing one aspect of Messiah over the other, we're making a terrible mistake. We're not grasping the fullness of who God is. And when we, we don't get his authority, we don't get the mission. So when Jesus is saying that all authority has been given to him, he's saying that he alone gets to set the agenda for humanity. And, and his authority would determine the mission of his followers. So I was trying to figure out like a, just a summary of, of what, what this is. And, and some people call it the Great Commission. I think that's helpful. That was actually uh, kind of coined in, in the 1600s by a Dutch missionary. But I don't think that, that really gives us the totality of what's going on here. So one commentator said, and I really like this, he calls this a royal summons. A royal summons. It's it's the long-awaited initiation of these promised plans of God under the guidance of, and the care of King Jesus. That's what this is. 
Okay, so that's what this is. Uh, so if this is a summons, what are we being summoned to do? That's a good question, right? So let's look. Verse 19 and 20 list really three kind of elements of this mission. And you can't really separate them, so we're not going to try to do that, but we are going to break it down a little bit to help us understand what's going on here. So first, they were to go and make disciples. So disciple is one of those words that you will probably hear in church, but probably not like in other places like at Starbucks or your job or in your family. Uh, that's just not super common English, but the, the concept behind the word is, is actually really familiar to us. So really simply, a disciple is a learner. It's a follower. A disciple is someone who identifies with the behavior and the thinking of someone else. Um, one commentator uh, helped me understand this a little bit better. He said, you know, today you would describe your education in terms of the school that you went to, right? So um, I went to UW-Madison, or you could say, I went to Bethany College of Missions, or you could say, I homeschooled, and people were like, and then you have to explain, that it was actually legit, really. <laughs> um, but, but in Jesus' day, you didn't describe your education in terms of a person, you described it in terms, I'm sorry, you didn't describe it in terms, I just totally stole my own thunder, uh, if you were paying attention, which hopefully you weren't. In, in Jesus' day, you described your education not in terms of the school you went to, but the, the person that you followed. Does that make sense? So here's the thing, guys. We're, we're all disciples of something. It doesn't, doesn't matter if you go to church or not. And when you're a disciple of something or someone, your life begins to take shape around the thinking and the values of that entity that you're following. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's, he's saying that, this mission is about inviting people to shape their values and their beliefs and their actions around Jesus and his teachings. Uh, and a lot's been said about the go part of this verse, go and make disciples. I think probably forests of trees have died uh, for commentators to write all of their stuff on this. Uh, and we're not going to spend a whole bunch of time on it, but we are going to spend a little time on it. So what does this mean? Does it, when, it's, when Jesus said, go and make disciples, does that mean we're supposed to leave where we are and go to a place and make disciples there where maybe the food is weird and, and they talk funny and, and all that kind of stuff? Or, or, and I've seen this used as a cop-out, or does it mean that we're just supposed to kind of, as we go around our daily lives, just make disciples where we are? And the answer is both. It's both. Uh, so I believe that there are two types of people on this planet. This is very serious. And by the way, when I say this is very serious, that's an indicator that a joke is about to come. So there are destination people and there are journey people. So uh, let me explain what I mean. My wife is a destination person, uh, which means that she plans our trips to get to where we need to go as quickly as possible. Zero distractions, zero stops. Boys, you got to pee in the coffee cup on the way. Like we are... We're on a mission right now, okay? Sorry, that was gross. Uh, and probably way more information than you needed right now. Uh, we're getting to know each other. So that's, that's destination people, uh, as you can see by the straight lines here. And then there are journey people. Okay. I, I am a journey person. 
Uh, journey people are really interested in everything, everything, no matter how unnecessary and trivial it is along the way. Why? It's not because we're dumb, I think, and it's not because we don't care about where we're going, but it's because we just like the journey. Come on, journey people, where are you at? Yes, thank you. Destination people, we love you too, we do. And it's my personal belief uh, that God uses journey people to teach destination people patience, okay? So if, if you're one and you're married to the other, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I talked to my wife about this and she totally agrees with me. She prays for patience every day. So journey people, you can just say you're welcome to your destination friends and spouses. Okay. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's, what he's saying is that, okay, so in order to make disciples of all nations, some of his followers would have to leave their homes and go to a destination to make disciples. But all of his disciples would have to make disciples as they go about their daily journeys. It's both. And, and here's what, he, what I think he's getting at, is disciple-making is not this isolated component of a Christ follower's life. It's an all-encompassing mission. It's like this trait that steers everything else. So that means that, that questions like, where should we live? What degree should I pursue? Where do we put the kids in school? Uh, what do we do with our tax return? What kind of relationships should I be prioritizing with my free time? What should I do when I retire? When should I retire? These are all questions that have to be shaped by the mission of Jesus. Why? Because all authority has been given to Jesus. And we answer to him. So that's going and making disciples. Now, baptism, really quickly. Baptism is, is just a symbol of identifying with Jesus and the community of faith. So the Greek word for that we, we use for bapt, or that we get baptism from is, is baptizo, and it means to dip or to immerse. So you know you, you put someone in the water and hopefully you remember to bring them back up. That's kind of important. Uh, and it's used of um, the, the the word, the Greek word is used of dipping cloth into a dye vat. And when you do that, the cloth takes on the color and the properties of that dye permanently. And that's kind of the the, the picture for for baptism. So you know, I think, I think these first two aspects make sense. I think we probably get that. But the, it's the last aspect of this mission that I think is what makes this mission so impossible on our own, so incredibly difficult. And it's that Jesus tells his followers to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. That we should stop and go, wait, really, Jesus, Everything? Like everything. He's like, yes, everything. Okay, so there are like 500 or so commands that Jesus gives his disciples. And some of those, depending on who you're talking to, are going to be easy to teach because they sound great. But others, not so much. So people, I think, who, who, are, who kind of fall into this more traditional, um, more religious kind of background mindset, I think they tend to love Jesus' claims to be the exclusive way to God. 
They appreciate Jesus for his conservative teachings on marriage and divorce and sexuality, but they might bristle when he asks us to love our enemies and to pray for our leaders even when they persecute us. I, I think sometimes religious people can struggle uh, when, with how Jesus seems to prioritize time with partiers and prostitutes and liars and cheaters. And then, and then you have the more like uh, liberal progressive types that they, they just get so stoked that Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And they will tell you that when you try to, you know, point them in a certain direction, speaking from experience. But they're scandalized when Jesus very clearly reinforces all that the Old Testament teaches about marriage and sexuality. They love the way he elevates the poor, but they're just confused when he claims to be the only way to God. I mean, do you get why this teaching everything? Like, really? That's so hard. You get that? You feel that? Jesus says, teach it all. Teach it all. And, and by the way, don't just teach for like an intellectual understanding, but teach them to actually obey these things. I mean, this should be an overwhelming thing to us. I'm sure his disciples were like, wait, Jesus, you taught all of that stuff, and then you got crucified. Like, you really want us to go and do that? How can you ask us to do that? And I don't know what culture was like in the disciples' day, but for us today, we tend, like our culture tends to treat morality kind of like a buffet where you can, you can choose from kind of whatever you want and take your pick from the things that you like and that resonate with you. And as long as you're sincere, and as long as your opinions are well-informed, you're okay. But here Jesus is saying no. In a world where, of sincere and well-informed opinions, I alone have been given authority. And I alone get to define what is right and good. So teach them to obey everything. And this is why we can't do it, guys. It's too controversial. It's too offensive. It's too risky. It's divisive. And, and, and I'm not even talking about like um, people who do this and you know they're kind of like weird. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about? Or, or maybe they're kind of jerks. And there are plenty of weird and, and jerks uh, who call themselves Christian. I, I am that often, I'm sure. So I'm not even talking about that. Like we can get in our own way. I'm just talking about you're not a jerk. You're not weird. You're just teaching what Jesus teaches and you're still going to be ostracized, misunderstood, and hated. And, and we see this play out in the text. So let's look back at verse 16. So it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. And you can almost like hear a record scratch, like, wait, what, 11? Weren't there supposed to be 12? Yeah. So why are there 11? Well, it's because one of Jesus' closest followers, this man named Judas, this moral, very religious man, by the way, named Judas, fell into league with the religious, religious elite in Jerusalem. Well, I should go back because I'm going to get emails. Uh, he was moral except that he stole sometimes, so whatever. Um, thank you. So he fell into league with the religious elite in Jerusalem. And he accepted a bribe and, and he betrayed Jesus to his death. And this this follower of Jesus, who, by the way, had spent every waking moment of three years of his life with this man, betrayed the one he was claiming to follow. 
And if you know the story, you know that he just overcome with grief and regret. He ended up hanging himself. Why? Why would he betray Jesus? And here's what I think. I think that he couldn't accept that if he was going to follow Jesus and do the mission of Jesus, it would mean that he would have to lay down his political convictions, his ethical opinions, and his self-serving ambitions. Judas missed the heart of the good news that Jesus isn't just a holy judge and he's not just a merciful servant, he's both. And because of that, he alone gets to define what is right and what is good. And then it says that some of his disciples doubted. And, and don't think like because they were skeptics and, and free thinkers, they were like, wait. No, I think what that just means is that they hesitated and actually uh, if you keep reading the story, you see that these people, even the ones who doubted, ended up saying yes to Jesus and his mission. But there was that pause, that hesitation when they saw Jesus. Like, can this really be true? Can he really be alive? Is that really Jesus? And I think we, we feel that too at times. Okay, so we talked about what makes this mission so hard and so impossible, but let's talk about what makes it possible. Can we do that? So in order to say yes to the mission of Jesus, you first have to accept the fullness of his authority. Why? Because his mission flows from his authority. Let's look again at verse 16 and 17. Look at how the scene plays out. Jesus shows up and what happens? Did he say, okay, losers? <sighs> okay, so you guys have barely made it this far. And honestly, I don't even know why I'm telling you this now because you're probably going to mess this up too. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say anything, did he? Other than the few who doubted or hesitated, what did his disciples do? They worshipped. And, and the Greek behind this describes them literally falling on their faces in worship and in acknowledgement of the King, the Messiah who's coming. I mean, they're... Their rabbi, who just a few days ago was a ragged corpse hanging on a cross, and now he was walking up to them on two strong legs with a smile on his face. And, and they didn't worship first, and then, uh, and notice too that they, they worshiped first, and then Jesus told them that all authority belonged to him. He didn't come in demanding their allegiance. They willingly gave it. Why? Because he's the merciful judge who just beat death. And listen, like, so important because our coworkers and our family members and our neighbors and our kids, they don't, they don't really care about what we know about Jesus. But they do care about why you have given up your life to follow him. You see the difference there? And the last thing I want you to do here is, is to leave feeling condemned and guilty and, and burdened. Instead, what I want us to do is to encounter the real Jesus, say yes to him and to worship. And only after that, only after you've said yes to Jesus, will this mission actually become a joy and an adventure. And there's something else here that makes the mission of Jesus possible, and it's in verse 20. 
It's so awesome that these are the last words of Matthew's gospel. What did Jesus say? He said, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And uh, when I first read this, I was like, wait, which disciple is Shirley? I'm just, <laughs> sorry, nope, that's homeschool humor. Sorry, nope. Um, nope. Now, what does this mean? I'm with you to the end of the age. It means that, that there is nowhere that you can go to make disciples where Jesus is not already in authority. It means that there's no one you'll ever talk to that God isn't already at work in it, pulling toward himself. So guys, there's no fear in Jesus' mission. There's no rejection that Jesus hasn't already experienced and there's no situation where he's not present. He, he knows who we are. He knows our struggles. He knows that we don't know enough, that he knows that we struggle to find the words. Like he knows how awkward it is to talk about Jesus with people. He totally gets that. He doesn't expect perfection, but he asks for persistent obedience. So what did this look like in the early church? And I want us to just kind of fast forward a little bit because these same disciples that said yes to Jesus, uh, Jesus ascended to heaven and the disciples uh, were baptized in the Holy Spirit and then they started doing this. I want us to look at what that looks like really quickly to get some concrete um, thinking going on here. So we're going to fast forward to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I'm going to read this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord, get this, added to their number daily those who were being saved. So what do we notice? Like, what did they actually do to make disciples? You, can, you could almost start to build a list from this passage. And this isn't an exhaustive place, like there are other places in scripture to go and look, but you could start building a list here. So first, they, they grew by listening to good Bible teaching. And at Door Creek, we value gathering. Like that's something we do here, gathering under the teaching of God's word. Um, they hung out together in their homes. So we do that too. We, we value community. If you're not in a life group yet, I wanna just give a plug for that. They prayed together for people who are sick and hurting. That's also one of our core values here, persistent prayer. They were generous with one another and with people in their community who were in need, which by the way, gave them an awesome reputation in their community. And we value contagious generosity here. They met in public spaces and they interfaced with the community and, and they did all of that and what happened? God added to their numbers because he was with them and he's with us. So let's, let's just look real quickly at, our, at the mission of, our, of Door Creek Church here. I'm gonna put it on the screen. And uh, can we just read this together? Because I think this is the perfect way to, to segue out of this. This message. So let's read it together. Joining God in changing people into devoted followers of Christ who change the world with his love. That's our mission. I just want to close with this encouraging 
story. I, I have a, a good friend. His name is Anthony. He's in Reno. He just walked through this whole process. Uh, he and his wife were, were both working full-time. They weren't attending church. They both kind of grew up in church. Um, and uh, their life was just, just not good. Not good. There's, they were overwhelmed. They were stressed out. They had two girls who were in every sport under the sun, and uh, they were stressed out at work. There was tension in their marriage. And they were just like, this is not going the way we feel like it should go. So they encountered Jesus. They encountered Jesus, and then everything changed. Everything shifted. They started coming to church. They got baptized. They began to follow Jesus, who was a better leader, and they began to recenter their lives around his mission, which is a better mission. And it was cool to watch how over like, the, the next year, they started to reevaluate their, priori- their priorities, and they started to kind of just drop all the things that, that weren't adding to their joyful obedience to Jesus. And they, they started doing, uh, they started serving in, in kids' ministry at our church. They started uh, joining a life group. They started to prioritize their spiritual growth and a, as a family. And the last time I talked to Anthony, just having coffee with him, he was really excited because he was starting to figure out how to take these teachings of Jesus and implement them as a manager to his team at work, just in his tone, in his posture toward his team. So cool. And that's what this looks like. So let's pray as we close, and then we're going to sing. Jesus, thank you so much for this mountaintop experience. Pray that it would show us the bigger picture of what you're, you're at. I pray that, God, we would be able to leave here having said yes to you and saying yes to your mission. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would experience such joy, such freedom, such sweetness in saying yes. And Lord, uh, some of us here are, are skeptical. Some of us are doubting. Some of us are hesitating. I pray that you'd work in our hearts. Um, pray that we would grow to trust you by learning who you really are. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Thank you. Amen.